Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Paul Gianfrido's story is like that of too many Americans. His son, Tim, suffers from schizophrenia. It led to a life of social isolation and dangerous outbursts, to conflicts with teachers and run-ins with the law, and finally to the streets, a place where many people end up in a society that seems ill-equipped to accept them. But unlike the millions of Americans who struggle to help their children get through life with serious mental illness, Gianfrido had another role as a lawmaker in the Connecticut General Assembly, helping to shape the public policy that he now says failed his son. Paul Gianfrido is now president and CEO of Mental Health America. He joins us today from the studios of NPR in Washington. His book is called Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia. We'd like to hear from you if you have stories about dealing with our mental health system, especially how it pertains to young people. Join our conversation. Call us at 860-275-7266. Again, our phone number is 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up later, we'll be talking about both federal and state policies dealing with mental health uh, reform. But first, I want to welcome in Paul Gianfrido, President and CEO of Mental Health America from Washington today. Paul, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to start with the story of your son, Tim. You, you adopted him. Tell us a bit of, of Tim's story growing up and, and how you began to, to notice that he had serious mental illness. Well, Tim was a very cute baby. I think people in the state legislature uh, who are still there today would remember when he was two and three years old and I used to bring him into work with me. And everybody loved him. Uh, But around the time he turned five years old and went to school, he developed signs and symptoms of schizophrenia. And at that point, as a matter of public policy, we began to neglect him, like we neglect a lot of young people who have mental health concerns and conditions. Uh, We struggled with the schools and with school programs, getting him into special education. And when we did get him into special education, we struggled to get those individualized educational programs implemented. Uh, He began to be suspended from school, expelled from school after fifth grade. He never completed another year of school on time. And when he turned 18 and wanted to become independent, the kinds of things we did to him as a child are the kinds of things we began to do to him as an adult. We fired him from his job when the symptoms of his illness flared up. Uh, He was uh, evicted from housing three consecutive times over about a year or two uh, when he wanted to try to live independently, and he ended up on the streets. And in that revolving door that captures so many people like Tim with serious mental illness, a revolving door between homelessness, occasional hospitalization, and frequent incarceration. That's been Tim's life for the last 10 years. He's 30 years old now, living in San Francisco, doing a little better the last couple months, uh, but continuing in this revolving door uh, with policymakers continuing to make the same mistakes uh, over and over again that we made 30 years ago. Could you talk about the very early signs that you saw, and maybe some specifics here, because we hear often about schizophrenia being a disease that can present in the teenage years or sometimes in the late 20s for the very first time, which can shock and confuse people and family members. But uh, your son began to show symptoms very, very early. Can you talk about some of those? 
Yeah, and, and let me just say generally, you know, half of all serious mental illnesses emerge by the age of 14. Uh, we often don't recognize them till young adulthood, and that's part of the problem of our system where we typically wait about 10 years from the time symptoms emerge to the time we get an accurate diagnosis and treatment. In Tim's case, when he was five, uh, his teachers noticed things. We noticed things. He had difficulty sleeping at night. He had difficulty uh, attending to things in the in the classroom. He would occasionally withdraw from other students, difficulty making friendships. Um, a lot of things like that that uh, sometimes uh, confuse people, um, make people think, adults think maybe those are other kinds of things that are happening, uh, but usually take us down blind alleys and toward uh, incorrect diagnoses and incorrect labels and incorrect treatments and supports. And that's pretty much what happens to kids like Tim uh, over and over again. You know, in the school system these days in Connecticut and in every other state, we only really identify about one in every 28 children for purposes of special education who have a serious mental health concern. 27 out of 28 uh, are fully ignored and neglected through the entire time uh, they're in school. Uh, Tim was one of the lucky ones uh, who was identified, but the lucky ones aren't so lucky in this case. And I want to talk in a, in a few moments about, about why that is and talk about the special education system. If you want to join us in our conversation with Paul Gianfrido, 860-275-7266, the book he wrote a few years ago about uh, his story with Tim is called Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia. Um, uh, Tim, as you say, was adopted. Uh, he's black. You're white. That doesn't have anything to do with mental illness, but how did that change some of the ways in which he was treated within the system and within the school system, do you think? Tim was treated the way a lot of young black men are treated uh, in, in life and in the school system. Uh, he was uh, various times uh, singled out or treated differently because of his race. I think our family was occasionally treated differently because we were a multiracial family uh, and there was in those days, you know, 30 years ago, some, some bigotry about that that uh, I think persists to today. Um, and as a result, I think, you know, people often look to other kinds of reasons. Well, maybe Tim is misbehaving because, you know, of, he was adopted. Or maybe Tim is misbehaving because, you know, his, his, his parents don't know what they're doing. Uh, maybe Tim's misbehaving because he uh, just doesn't do the right thing like other kids are supposed to do. You know, we often blame children who have serious mental illnesses, thinking that they can just will their way out of them. And when we stop blaming them, we often blame their parents. So what I would say is, I mean, I could point to adoption and, and, and transracial adoption as, as realities in my life, but uh, they're hardly um, unique experiences, and, and they hardly create unique reactions to the way kids with serious mental illnesses are treated. Could you talk a bit about the special education system that, that Tim entered into and, and how it's constructed, what it's constructed to do, and, and how it failed him? Because as you use the word misbehavior over and over again, it, it strikes me that so much of, of the conversation around special education uh, revolves around the notion that it's this very, very broad um, broad heading that includes kids who misbehave, kids who have very serious mental illness, kids who are depressed or have uh, some sort of trauma at home, kids who have a health disorder or maybe can't hear or see as well, and the list goes on and on and on. In Tim's case, it was a very serious mental illness, but he was essentially being put into a system that was not meant to really care for him in the school system. It was meant to throw a blanket over kids with dozens or maybe hundreds of different types of conditions. 
One of my uh, good close friends uh, back in the 90s in Connecticut had been a young lawyer during the Carter administration days and had worked on the development of the regulations around the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. It was called something different in those days. But I remember talking to him at one point uh, when Tim was a teenager and saying, you know, is this who you had in mind when you were writing all those regulations? And he looked at me and he said, Paul, we were thinking of kids in wheelchairs. And we did a really good job of dealing with kids with physical disabilities and including them in classrooms. We did a pretty good job of taking kids with intellectual and other developmental disabilities and including them in classrooms. And and if you think about it, uh, you think about the modifications and the changes we made. But we didn't think at all about kids like Tim who were going to have serious emotional disabilities, serious mental health concerns and conditions. And so we didn't build a special education system that was equipped uh, to deal with kids like Tim. It took us about three years from the time Tim was recognized by his very good teachers, who really did a great job in identifying him and identifying some of his issues. But it still took us three years to get him enrolled in the special education program. And then it took us another year to get an individualized education program put in place for Tim. So four years. And we thought that was unusually long at the time. But what I've learned subsequent to that is it typically takes about three years uh, anywhere for when a kid begins to get the first referrals to the time they actually get uh, an IEP. And then when they do, you know, kids who have mental illnesses, as I mentioned, don't often get identified uh, as for special education purposes on the basis of those um, th- those those mental health concerns. What's the problem with that? Well, the idea is you're supposed to get an appropriate education in a least restrictive environment, uh, and and you're you're put into special education, enrolled in special education, so that you can succeed in school and succeed educationally. And in many areas, kids have to be two years behind grade level. That's a standard before they give them a special education program. And what I tell people is, if you wait till a kid with a serious mental illness is two years behind grade level before you give them special education services, they are never going to catch up. That's why our kids are more frequently suspended. That's why our kids are more frequently expelled. We start from the beginning in not addressing their health needs. These are not addressing behavioral needs. Those are behavioral manifestations of health needs. But we start at the beginning by not addressing those, and then we wonder why we have bad outcomes. We're going to take some phone calls at 860-275-7266. If you want to join the conversation with former Connecticut State lawmaker Paul Gianfrido, uh, whose book is called Losing Tim. He is now president and CEO of Mental Health America, and he joins us uh, down the line from Washington, D.C. at NPR headquarters. Maureen is in Torrington. Hi, Maureen. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I just want to say that um, having an adopted child right now, 11 years old, trying to accomplish the same the same objectives um, as your guest, the, the things he ran into when his child were young are still prevalent today in the system here in Connecticut in terms of the special education system not being responsive to the needs of children with early signs of mental and emotional disabilities, getting them an IEP, getting them an appropriate IEP, and then the child mental health delivery system not recognizing certain characteristics of conditions early on and also being responsive to the parents trying to access specific types of care or care that um, is more healing-based opposed to managing or minimizing symptoms, managing the child in the home or the school environment. And I wanted to find out what um, your, your guest organization is trying to do to change that both in Connecticut and across the country. Thank you, Maureen, very much for that. Paul? 
Yeah, at Mental Health America, we say we stand for four things, prevention for all, early identification and intervention for those at risk, integrated health, behavioral health, and other services for those who need them, and recovery as a goal. And we've distilled that philosophy into an umbrella that we call before stage four, arguing that mental health concerns and conditions, the only chronic diseases that as a matter of public policy, we wait till stage four to treat, and then often inappropriately only through incarceration. So we are the recovery people. We are recovery focused. We are peer focused. Our history at Mental Health America and Mental Health Connecticut, founded by Clifford Beers, a Connecticut resident 107 years ago, has always come from the perspective that we need to do more. Um, and, and, and adopt and adapt the perspective of people who have mental health concerns, um, who, can, who can move toward recovery and work together with our support to move toward recovery. And what we are uh, recognizing, I think what we understand, is that there was a huge mistake that we policymakers in the 1980s made. And that was that when we were deinstitutionalized and we said, okay, we've got to build a a system of community-based services, we looked at who was coming out of the state hospitals, and those were adults. What we didn't understand was the people who had been going into the system were children. And by not understanding that, we just never built a system adequate in Connecticut or elsewhere to deal with the needs of children, to catch them early, to do early identification and early intervention, to get them at stage one or stage two, not wait for stage four, and then move them toward recovery as quick as we possibly could and provide the supports that they needed in order to succeed at school and to succeed in life. And that's what we're working on at Mental Health America now, and that's what I wish I'd worked on a whole lot more back in the 1980s. Hey, we could at least say we were naive in those days and didn't understand that. Policymakers today aren't naive about that. They understand that. They know what the problems are. They understand these are childhood illnesses that we're dealing with, and they're not doing enough to address them. Could you just talk through a bit more your your time in the Connecticut State Legislature and some of what you were working on? As you say, times were different then. We understood uh, many different things about mental health and mental illness than we do today. But but you, you seem to repeatedly sort of put put yourself in the middle of this and say, look, what I did in the 1980s actually helped to shape the system that failed that failed him. Can you just take us through your time in the legislature and what specific issues you were grappling with in Hartford that that led to the system we have now? Well, we were grappling with the expense of running our state psychiatric hospitals and how we could close those state psychiatric hospitals down, move people into communities and provide community services, and save money because we were always concerned first about making sure that the taxpayers were taken care of. And so we looked at our adult system of care and we tried to build uh, a system of services. We were trying to build a system of community-based services for people with mental illnesses that really were built on the needs of adults who were being deinstitutionalized at the time. This was a small population in relative terms uh, with very serious illnesses who who needed to be uh, part of our concern. But we were ignoring the fact that there was a large population of people who would be coming into that system and who were going to be moving from stage one to stage two to stage three of a disease process. We didn't even understand uh, that kind of thing. I I tell people that when I was in the state legislature, we didn't even understand post-traumatic stress disorder. It took Vietnam veterans coming to us and testifying about this thing that we used to call shell shock that was actually a real, legitimate, important uh, mental health concern that we in the 1980s knew absolutely nothing about as a matter of public policy. Now, of course, we recognize 7% of people in the general public 
um, have symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, the majority of Vietnam veterans exhibited symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. We just know a whole lot more than we did then. But in those days, you know, it was about saving money first, and it was about building systems of supports and services second for a lot of people. You know, we always looked at the, the crisis. We always looked at the funding crisis, and we always cut first from, from people with mental health concerns. We always cut first in the areas of health and social services. We did it then, and we're doing it now. We're going to be talking more about uh, some of those cuts maybe coming here in Connecticut in a moment. Uh, I want to get to one more phone call before our break. Uh, Kate is calling from Hartford. Hi, Kate. Go ahead. You're on Where We Live. Um, yes, thank you for having me on. Um, I lived a life as a kindergarten teacher, um, worrying about uh, children in my classroom who are four years old who are showing symptoms of mental illness. Um, attacking other children, et cetera, having issues um, that I had to work with getting IEPs and all of that. And it was such a fight because it's as if people don't think the children that young will already exhibit um, um, symptoms of mental illness, even at four years old, five years old, um, but they do. And um, it is so hard because they'll always say, well, they have ADHD, and then the same thing happened to my own daughter. And um, she was ADHD, they said. Um, by the time she was 14, I went to the Institute of Living, tried to get her um, help. And um, they interviewed her and said she was not a danger to anybody else or to herself. Even though she uh, spent the, in the waiting room, curled up in the fetal position. And um, she was seeing demons, had run away from the house because she felt the demons were poisoning the food in the house. She also... Um, um, just very erratic behavior and unable to control herself in many ways. But she was um, uh, an A student. She was two years ahead of, of, of school until she hit, like, about 15. Then she started uh, slipping. But the, because she was doing so well academically didn't mean that she didn't have um, psychological problems. It's just nobody recognized it. And I want parents to understand that a lot of times you say, well, my child's going through a phase. Kids go through phases. And that's what I was doing, you know, saying, well, it's a phase. It'll change, you know. She'll, it'll change. But, but there's things that are going on. There should be an early detection mm. system where people can pick up. These are not just childhood phases. That they are symptoms of something that's coming up later. And then at 14 years old, people should take it more seriously when there is an issue and not just, like you say, save money. Sweep it under well, the rug. So now she's she's been um, institutionalized 20 times, hmm. and um, she's doing she's in recovery now. And I'm working with um, Keep the Promise. I take training to work with the legislature to um, fight to get funding and help. And one of the things, the Behavioral Health Partnership is trying to put in um, mental health clinics into the schools well, so that these kids can go to some place and the parents have a place to get help when there is a mental illness problem. And, and Kate, thank, th first of all, thank you very much for sharing your daughter's story. And I'm, I'm very glad to hear that she is getting some of the help she needs, but I'm sorry about the, the road that she's been on. Um, before we break, I'd love for you to respond, Paul. And part of what I hear there in, in Kate's story is, I mean, if you if you have a child, a teenager who is who is literally seeing demons and hearing voices, um, and then that child gets in trouble, as as you write about with with Tim. 
with with drugs or with acting out, there is a sense that Tim and many others are are self medicating, trying to to keep those voices at bay, uh, doing things that the voices are telling them to do that people cannot understand. And, and without some sort of better understanding from the school system, there's almost no way to grapple with it. It's just seen as misbehavior, but it's it's literally a young person grappling with something that that the rest of us can't can't even imagine. That's right. Uh, I would say that that you know Tim's kindergarten teacher was one of my heroes, really, in the in the story because she was one of the people who said, you know, there is a difference here. And just like that that caller was a kindergarten teacher. If we just listen to our kindergarten teachers, you know, they can give us a pretty good idea about who people, who the kids are, who who are just different, who are who are likely to have more serious mental health concerns, even at that age. And if we listen to our third and fourth grade teachers at that age, they can probably help us with that too. Uh, nobody is trying to put all this burden on the schools um, because the fact of the matter is that you know teachers notice differences, parents notice differences, peers notice differences. Children themselves can describe differences, the way they feel different from other children. Tim certainly uh, could describe that. We simply need to pay attention to this and not just think about this as bad behavior. We need to understand that if we screen people, screen everybody for mental health concerns, that's one of the things we, we advocate at Mental Health America. Everybody, ki- all kids, all adults, should get regular mental health screenings. So just like we get regular cancer screenings so that we can identify things at stage one, <clears throat> it makes it so much easier, so much easier to move people uh, on a pathway to recovery uh, than to wait till stage three or t- stage four, to wait till the voices are, are so overwhelming that a child starts self-medicating as a teenager, to wait until they've been ex- is suspended from school or expelled from school, and then think, well, maybe we need to do something differently. There, there's just no purpose in waiting. We don't wait with cancer till stage four and then treat that then and, and think we're going to get great results with recovery. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? With mental illnesses. As you write, we would never treat any other chronic prevalent disease the way we treat mental illness. And despite the promise of mental health parity when it comes to insurance, that's not necessarily something that actually happens across America right now. Those are a few issues we'll talk more about with Paul Gianfrido. We're also going to bring in Luis Perez, who is the president and CEO of Mental Health Connecticut. We're going to be talking about mental health services right here in our state. And we're going to take more of your phone calls as well at 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Our guest today is Paul Gianfrido. He's president and CEO of Mental Health America. He joins us today from the studios of NPR in Washington, D.C. His book is called Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia. Paul Gianfrido now has this role as an advocate for those with mental illness, but he grew up uh, with his son, Tim, who uh, he adopted and who has schizophrenia. He was also at the time a Connecticut state lawmaker, later mayor of Middletown, and he talks about how he was part of a system that put together the mental health system we have today. It's it's quite a story, and we're getting a lot of phone calls from people today. So let's quickly get to Deborah, who's calling from Southampton, New York. Hi, Deborah. Go ahead. You're on where we live. Hi. Thank you very much for this program. Uh, I had a son uh, who uh, was um, bipolar. Uh, at the age of four, he began showing symptoms. I myself was a therapist who had worked at Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital and then went in the field of education mainly to help my son navigate the system. Um, 
We treated him originally with, we tried a trial of Ritalin just for six weeks when he was in first grade. And he was a very happy child. In the middle of that trial, he said he wanted to kill himself. And I had never heard him speak like that. So we took him off of that, and I started treating him with uh, various homeopathic drugs. Anyhow, through school, he had a lot of difficulty getting help because he was a very smart and creative child, and he could often run circles around therapists. As he grew into adulthood, the problem was that he began using drugs uh, to alleviate his pain and his symptoms. And what happened was that when he needed help, he would be bounced from one program uh, in which uh, they would say, well, we can't treat people with mental illness, only with drug problems. Then he would bounce to another program that would say, we only treat mental illness and not children or young adults with drug problems. And so this is uh, also a problem in the system. And I have to say that living on the east end of Long Island, it was very difficult finding the appropriate resources, and we went to New York. Finally, I encouraged him to follow his dream. He went to California. He was acting. He was doing his music. But he had a very tragic ending, unfortunately, where he went off of his meds, and um, I lost him uh, last year. And right now I'm on my way to California to do a little investigation of exactly what happened. But I do have to say that the... NAMI, National Association for Mental Illness, is very helpful. And I want to uh, applaud Paul John Frito's efforts on behalf of these children. Thank you. Deborah, thank you very much for your phone call. And I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you for calling us. Um, so, Paul, there's a lot in Deborah's story there. Um, before we go to our next guest, I'd just like you to comment on this transition to adulthood that, that you, you talked about briefly at the beginning of the program that, that Tim made all the problems in school that you had to deal with when he was essentially in your custody, in your care, uh, younger than 18, so much changes when someone graduates to an adult system for mental health care. And can you talk about the holes there? Um, sure. Uh, you know, <clears throat> when somebody becomes an adult, then in, in many instances, the parents are pretty much cut out of the picture. A lot of people sometimes say, well, you know, why don't you do more for your son now? You know, why don't you bring him back? Why don't you do... And you, you try to explain to people that, that 18-year-olds are legal adults. They make their own decisions, and they're allowed to make their own decisions. And they should be able to make their own decisions. Just because they have an illness doesn't mean they're they're incompetent to make those decisions, um, even though they make decisions that we may not agree with. I don't often agree with the, the decisions that, that Tim has made. I don't always agree with the decisions my other children make either, but they're their decisions, and they probably don't agree with mine. But it gets so much um, – the, the great difficulty, I think, for a lot of our kids and we see it in that story, too, is the the issue of self-medicating that comes up and the lack of understanding in our war on drugs that this is just self-medicating, um, that this is not should not be thought of as criminal behavior because what we end up doing is transitioning our kids uh, into the criminal justice system. You know, I, I make the point often that, you know, when people say, you know, they worry about marijuana and they worry about legalization of marijuana because it could be a gateway drug. And I say, yeah, it was a gateway drug for Tim. It was a gateway to prison. So a gateway to jail. And and that's what really happens uh, with a lot of our kids. And that's why, in effect, we didn't deinstitutionalize in the 1980s. We reinstitutionalized. We didn't close our state hospitals. We reopened them as county jails and state prisons. And that's the most problematic piece of the transition to adulthood for so many of our kids that we've absorbed them into the criminal justice system and think of this 
as a public safety issue instead of working with them within our health system and thinking about this as a public health issue. I want to bring into the conversation Luis Perez, who's president and CEO of Mental Health Connecticut. They're affiliated, of course, with Mental Health America. He co-chairs Governor Malloy's cabinet on nonprofit health and human services. He joins us by phone. Luis, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me, John. You've been listening to the conversation with Paul, and we brought up a lot of issues. For you right now with Mental Health Connecticut, as we start this new legislative session and we think about the ways in which we are dealing with mental health and mental illness in our state, what are the big issues on your plate right now, Luis? Well, let's just start by uh, reiterating something that Paul said in terms of um, the four uh, areas that we need to focus on in terms of addressing um, mental health conditions. Uh, We definitely need to have prevention. We need to have early identification and um, services uh, available. Uh, We need to have integration and um, all that uh, focused on on persons uh, being able to recover from their illness. Um, So in terms of um, uh, early uh, prevention and early intervention, uh, we have seen, um, if not decreases, lack of funding uh, in terms of being able to address the needs of um, children um, as well as um, the general population. Uh, And in terms of early intervention and access to services, um, the biggest concerns in terms of the proposed budget have, have to do with a system that has been underfunded for many years, um, which um, now is going to experience a great decrease in terms of resources. So being able to access services and being able to offer providers out in the community uh, to be able to provide um, high quality um, and um, uh, rapid access to, to services once persons are identified uh, is going to be of, of great concern. Um, the other piece of it is, of course, integration. And, and, and we can't look at this just from the perspective of funding for um, um, just strictly mental health services. Um, We know uh, that best practices, evidence-based practices, show that uh, persons who have access to um, stable and safe and affordable housing do better. People that have access to integrated or whole health, both their minds and bodies, uh, people who are able to um, have a purpose, be able to be employed, and not just employed, but um, have competitive employment, and, and be able to rejoin the community in a meaningful way. All of those are, are components or pillars of recovery, if you will, that, um, again, will be affected um, through uh, these budget cuts. Well, and let's talk specifically about some of these. Uh, the, the proposal that came out in Governor Malloy's budget just this week calls for something like a $16 million cut to grants that fund outpatient mental health care systems and substance abuse treatment. Our, our caller from Southampton talked about some of the issues here. When we uh, segregate substance abuse from mental health treatment and what a big problem that can be, um, maybe you can talk about an impact like that. If we see a $16 million cut in services for outpatient mental health uh, services, Luis. What exactly does that mean to the system here in Connecticut? Well, I, again, I think it's going to mean that there's going to be a reduction to access to those services. Um, we have been hearing in the news most recently, and 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 it's it's no news to our um, behavioral health community that um, we have a, an opioid epidemic. Well, this has been going on for a very long time. I think that what has changed is that. Um, you know, the, the, the product that's out there, if you will, uh, it's much more lethal uh, and people are dying. And, and it's unfortunate that we get to that point of people dying in order to uh, start paying attention to something that has been going on for a very long time. 
Um, so, yes, the integration of both substance um, use uh, and addiction services with mental health, again, it's, it's, it's been a best practice. Um, let, let me also say that um, here in Connecticut, uh, while we have all these concerns, we, we do enjoy, um, through the very hard work of, of, of many commissioners, many uh, advocates, uh, we do enjoy a, 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 a public uh, mental health system uh, or behavioral health system that uh, is the standard in many cases uh, for the country. Uh, that, however, does not um, excuse us from always uh, trying to uh, reach and be uh, and improve upon what the work that has been done. Um, but Paul, I want I want to turn to you and and get at this question of of budget budgeting for our mental health system uh, in America and specifically in Connecticut right now. As, as we've said, you were a Connecticut state legislator in the 1980s. You were dealing with some of the issues of, of closing down the state uh, mental hospitals uh, at the time. And the problems you were facing in the 1980s are essentially the problems we're facing right now. We often kind of comically joke about what's been called the state of permanent fiscal crisis in Connecticut. But it, it's very real. We're constantly trying to figure out a way to pay the bills, and we're constantly seemingly having to make decisions like the ones that are coming out in the governor's budget, the ones that you had to make when you were in the legislature. Make a case for me, Paul, if you would, for the people listening, of why it's important to, from your perspective, maintain funding for these very core services that provide the things that you and Luis are talking about. It's for the same reason that it's important to maintain funding for our roads and bridges. You know, if we don't, the infrastructure falls apart. Uh, people don't want to move to the state. People escape the state. They they can't get from place to place. They can't get from here to there. And if you look at the area of human services, in particular, in, in particular these these particular programs, these particular services that 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 really affect people who are you know like Tim uh, and people who who have great needs and and uh, and and now require great resources either way or great investments of resources either way. What I think people need to understand is that when you say, okay, what we're going to do is cut across the board and everybody's going to feel that pain equally, that's actually not true. Everybody doesn't feel that pain equally. You take 5% or 6% out of out of budgets and, and out of services that are already, as, as Luis said, woefully underfunded and say, okay, now they're going to feel just as much pain as the, the 5 or 6% we take out of um, you know, benefits to retirees. I'm, I'm a Connecticut retiree. I, I have my health insurance through the Connecticut Retirees Health Insurance Program. Um, it, it, the, the, it, it isn't felt the same way. And, and, and the retirees, you know, don't feel it. They'll feel it worse than, than people who are, who are better off than they are. And if you keep going up the ladder, you know, people can absorb those cuts. And the kinds of people who are making those cuts uh, frankly, tend to have resources and and tend to say, "Look, I can tighten my belt still there 's still a little more I can do to tighten my belt in order to do this, but the people on whose behalf they 're making those cuts, some of them just don 't have belts to tighten you know they just they don 't have the belts anymore, and so that 's the problem that we 've got here now. You can address this problem by saying instead of saying we 're going to cut all of this, as Louise said. You could say, we're going to invest more money up front. We're going to invest more money in kids in the special education system. We're going to invest more money into, into housing, into employment supports and services for adults. We can invest more money into, into these kinds of things so that we can take people who are at stage one and move them toward recovery. And if we don't think that's going to be cost effective, 
again, just think about it in terms of cancer. How much less does it cost to move somebody with a stage 1 cancer toward recovery than it does to move somebody with a stage 4 cancer toward recovery? As a matter of public policy, we're waiting too long with mental health concerns and conditions. We're waiting till stages 3 and 4 and then saying, you know, now we need to do something about this crisis. It's going to cost you a lot to do it that way. We can do a whole lot better, a whole lot cheaper, and and benefit the people of Connecticut and every other state a whole lot more if we just do prevention, early identification, early intervention, and integrated services and whole health services, like Louise said. Well, and, and Louise, quickly, I'll turn to you before our break, though. The integration means a lot of things in, in this field, but also integration in policymaking. Look, if, if Paul's making the case that that housing policy is tied into early childhood education policy, which is tied into special education policy, which is tied into mental health policy. That's actually not the way we approach it, right? We, we have advocates like you who are advocating on the mental health side, and we have people in the legislature who care very much about one issue or the other. But we seem to not, unless I'm missing something, Luis, we seem to be not having a conversation in which all these things get tied together and say, look, this is a holistic way in which we combat this problem and a whole bunch of other problems that plague us at the same time. And you're absolutely right. Uh, we do tend to uh, silo uh, each of uh, the departments and, and each of the uh, policy agendas. Um, we have um, sometimes um, not enough collaboration among departments. Uh, we often see that um, cuts are made to uh, across the board, not understanding the impact that um, one department, um, for example, housing or the Department of Labor or the Department of Rehabilitation Services will have on on the DEMAS population. Um, So what we have been doing here at Mental Health Connecticut is is actually not just advocating for for mental health issues. Our our, uh, uh, policy agenda and our legislative agenda includes all of those areas and, and we um, work with uh, the policymakers uh, to help them understand how that impacts from one place to the other. Luis Perez is president and CEO of Mental Health Connecticut. He also co-chairs Governor Malloy's cabinet on nonprofit health and human services. Luis, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. and Thank you for um, bringing this to the forefront. When we continue our conversation, we'll be back with Paul Gianfrido, who's the author of Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia. We'll take more of your phone calls at 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today, our guest is Paul Gianfrido, President and CEO of Mental Health America. He joins us from NPR in Washington. His book is Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia. He's a former Connecticut state lawmaker. We're taking some of your calls about policy here. And let's go quickly to Kathy, who's calling from Newington. Hi there, Kathy. You're on Where We Live. Hi, John. Um, I just want to thank you for continuing this discussion about mental health. And I'm going to make this a really brief comment because I was asked to do that. My biggest concern, especially as a person who's living in recovery and a person who's the executive director of an agency that protects people's legal rights, is our continuing to repeat the policy of making those policy decisions based on failures of the system. And I would love to see us flip that dynamic on its head and talk more to people who, like me, have... um, found recovery, have figured out things that work for us, have been in the system, 
have have lived through the system and focus on what it took. What was it that made us well? You know, what parts of the system worked for us? What didn't work? Because too often I see us return to policies of the past that actually didn't help a lot of people and it, some for some people actually hurt them. And that's really the biggest concern that I have. I've enjoyed listening to this discussion um, and just hope we can continue the conversation more. Kathy, thank you very much for your phone call. And, and Paul, maybe you can take Kathy's lead there and, and give us something that, that works, that you know works, that maybe we just need to focus more on. Well, housing works. Education works. Um, prevention works. Uh, you know, the, the best example I can give, you know, it doesn't address the area of schizophrenia, but post-traumatic stress disorder, when people say, well, what do you mean by prevention? Post-traumatic stress disorder, has a, it's, it's caused by trauma. And a lot of people think it's our vets coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, our vets who came back from Vietnam, who most uh, suffer the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's actually our children. It's students in our screening program that we have at Mental Health America that people can do online at mhascreening.org. Um, we find it's, it's kids and, and children who are most frequently um, positive for PTSD. So, you know, prevention does work. Um, services that are mainstream services do work. Integrating health and behavioral health services do work. Institutionalizing people doesn't work. Depriving people of rights doesn't work. Um, you know, treating people as if they're always going to be sick and never can recover doesn't work. Um, many of the same things work that work for people with any other chronic disease or condition. Uh, let's go to Rebecca in Niantic. Hi, Rebecca. Go ahead. Hi. Um, nice to talk to you. I have a 14-year-old daughter who has exhibited signs of mental illness since she was very young. And, you know, as we hit the puberty years, um, she's been hospitalized several times. The I want to kind of address that whole system of the pediatric uh, psychiatric facilities that are just woefully underproductive. She sort of, you know, never lands in the same place. The doctors are more like, let's just medicate, 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 and get her stable and get her out. Um, to this day, we still don't have a very concrete diagnosis for her. Um, it's kind of mental, you know, some sort of mental health disorder, NOS. Um, which makes treating successfully tricky. And so, you know, I'd like to see some real work done in really the only options we have as parents is to, um, when our kids are in deep crisis, is to put them in these hospitals for short-term stays. But nothing really happens beyond that. And also I'd like to say that the uh, the child psychiatrist population, and especially southeastern Connecticut, I don't really know about the rest of the state, is not great. <laughs> we don't have mm. great choices down here. I, and, um, well, well, Rebecca, thank you for sharing your story, and I wish you best of luck uh, with, with your daughter's uh, future treatment. And um, So she brings up two things, and I want to add one thing to, to, to ask you about, Paul. So 
there's uh, pediatric uh, psychiatric facilities, there's the lack of practitioners in this field, which is something we've heard about. But then there's also that front door piece, something that's been reported on extensively and we've talked about on our program as well, that often the front door for kids with serious um, mental illness is the emergency room because it's the only place they can go. And kids are queuing up in the emergency room with for days sometimes in Connecticut State Hospitals with no real treatment plan in probably the worst place for someone uh, who has a a serious mental illness, a loud um, emergency room that's not really meant to handle them. So there's a lot in there, but I guess I'm just wondering if you can talk about some of those services and and where we need to go. Yeah, sure. And and I would just comment, I think jails are even worse places for people to end up, and and that's where a lot of the adults end up uh, who exhibit signs and symptoms of mental illness and have, have crises or emergencies. One of the things that, uh, to kind of take it all at once, that um, has has really been impressed on me as I've I've gone around and done book signings around the country and talked about uh, Tim's story, is that many, many clinicians have come up to me and said, because I traced Tim's life, you know, over a 25-plus year period, and, and our story extends that far in the, in the book, Losing Tim, they say, you know, this is the first time I've had an opportunity to look kind of soup to nuts, you know, to look from the beginning to the end at the progression of this particular illness. What they tell me is often what they see is just an episode. And it's the same thing that the caller said, you know, it's a different practitioner who sees the child at 14 from the one who sees them at 16. It's a different institution they go into. It's a different program uh, that they that they get served by. And everybody just sees snapshots of our children. And we think they've got all the longitudinal history and, and all of the experience that we've got. And what we find is the way the system has built been built, it, it, it really mitigates against a lot of the clinicians having any longitudinal understanding. So again, they'll choose a drug that, that might work for somebody else or might have worked for somebody else showing similar kinds of symptoms. They, they may make a partial diagnosis, but they, they don't see the child long enough to make a complete diagnosis. You know, we have to fix that. We have to make a system that's more longitudinal. You know, one of the, the challenges there that we're working on in Washington and elsewhere is how to let health records follow people across all of these and, and keep people in control of their health records, but really get practitioners to look at those. Uh, just a year ago, uh, Tim had a new clinician who was working with him in the jail system, and they said, you know, his problem is substance use. And I said, no, his problem is schizophrenia. They said, no, his problem is substance use. Mm. I said, no, his problem is schizophrenia. And, and they said, well, how do you know that? Because <laughs> what I see is substance. Well, yeah, that's what you saw this week. But, you know, you want the records from the last 20 years. We'll send you the records from the last 20 years. Oh, well, no, maybe it was that. So, you know, it's a problem. We just have a few minutes left. Um, Paul, and I, I have to ask you about this. And obviously, this is something we've been grappling with over the course of the last couple of years. Um, we've talked to Senator Chris Murphy, uh, who's proposed with some of his colleagues an overhaul of the, the mental health system. And this is federal legislation. Um so much needs to be done, as we've talked about. We don't have time to get into all of it. But I, there's a feeling in America that this conversation has come up again in the last couple of years, in part because of what happened here in Connecticut in 2012 with the shootings at Sandy Hook. And there's been this this conversation about mental health that goes something like this. We need to provide services for young people like Adam Lanza so this doesn't happen. Or we need to keep guns out of the hands of young people or anybody who has mental illness. But we all know that people with mental illness generally are more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators of crime. I guess I'm wondering how you feel as an advocate for this for so many years, that we're having this conversation in part more 
because of the stigma attached to violence around mental illness that actually isn't the truth in the most for the most part. You know, you you kind of take the triggers that you can get to advance a, a national dialogue and discussion. Um, you know, I always have hope, and I'm a glass half full kind of person. I'm a glass half full person about Tim and having hope for Tim and his life and his future. I also have a lot of hope about this Congress and about this administration. Chris Murphy has done a tremendous job in developing legislation on the Senate side that is comprehensive in its approach. Maybe the genesis of some of the legislation was what happened in Sandy Hook, but it's much broader than that. And on the House side, uh, there's a similar bill by Tim Murphy, a Republican from Pennsylvania, and Eddie Bernice Johnson, a Democrat from Texas, uh, that is similarly comprehensive in its approach to, to mental health reform. And one of the things that I feel best about that happened in the last 24 hours was Speaker Ryan met with President Obama. And coming out of that meeting yesterday, Speaker Ryan was asked what they agreed on that they thought could move forward this year. And the very first thing he said was mental health reform. Our president understands this. Our speaker understands this. Members of the Senate understand this. The House, members of both parties. I think we have in place the opportunity this year to make a difference, the opportunity to lay the kind of foundation that we should have laid a generation ago. It won't solve every problem, won't appropriate every dollar that needs to be appropriated, but it will lay the foundation for a future system of comprehensive mental health services that will make a difference and will change the trajectories of lives like Tim's. Paul Gianfrido is president and CEO of Mental Health America. He joined us today from the studios of NPR in Washington. His book is Losing Tim, How Our Health and Education Systems Failed My Son with Schizophrenia. Paul, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown. Special thanks to our intern, Ross Levin, for his help today. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon is our digital editor. And Katie Talarski is our executive producer. Join us tomorrow as Jim Redeker, the head of the state DOT, joins us to take some of your phone calls. You can continue today's conversation online. Go to WNPR.org slash Where We Live. You can also continue it on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.